Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 6, and it's sort of near the beginning of the Bible. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And what comes after Ruth? Samuel. There you go. There's a quick response. Um, swords up. <laughs> a few of you know what I'm talking about. Um, the book of Ruth, uh, starting at verse 6 of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And my, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You may be seated. Hopelessness is a powerful blindness. In the past, I used to suffer from fairly severe migraines. They're a distant memory now for me, I hope. Um, but I remember some of the ways that they used to impact me. Uh, crippling pain in my head, often behind my eyes. I couldn't bear to open my eyes. I couldn't bear to close my eyes. And when I tried to focus on a single object, there was just intense pain, even in my head. And as I tried to look around and focus on other things, I couldn't do that either. Not only was my head uh, bothered by these things, but my stomach was, and uh, the pain would be so great that I would resort to vomiting. And after a while, you have nothing left in your stomach, and there are the dry heaves, and it feels like you're heaving your brain out, and maybe that explains some of my lacks from time to time. But it does feel that, that, that even your brain is being pulled out of your head as you are in those kind of circumstances. 
during those migraines, all my energy was focused, really, on just survival. I was unaware of my surroundings. I was unaware of the people around me. I was blinded by everything that was going on around me in those circumstances. And my goal was, literally, to just see the migraine through to live another day. Naomi wasn't suffering from a physical migraine. She was suffering from a circumstantial migraine. And her situation was way more severe and acute than mine ever was because of my headaches. Her hopelessness was far deeper, and the hole that she was in was far blacker than a little migraine that I would carry. For the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So deep was the grief that Naomi was going through, that, and the heart pain that she experienced, and the head pain that she was going through, and the potential future pain that I'm sure even to hear her name pronounced Naomi, which means pleasant, was hard. This chapter is full, I think, of insight into grief and grieving and how we deal with loss and how we wrestle with hopelessness. But I think it's important to broaden our horizons, not just from the hopelessness of physical grief and the loss of a loved one, but to focus on the grief that might come even from the loss of a relationship or the loss of huge economic circumstances or the loss of a career or the loss of health, because those can bring us to a point where we fear hopelessness. And I think that's where the broader understanding of 1 Thessalonians 4 is helpful. Beloved, do not grieve as those who have no hope. For the Christian, our situation is never hopeless. We begin, I think, in this passage of, uh, uh, of chapter 1 and 2 to, to, to 22 with just kind of getting the big picture in mind and, and dealing with the return itself. Because it's important that we start here because the, the author is trying to get our attention. Words matter. The emphasis on a word matters, especially in a short story or when you've only got a short period of time to get your point across. And the Hebrew writers were as good a storytellers as any other writers, even modern or, or ancient. And they would use the repetition of a word or the repetition of a phrase to draw your attention to something that was important or to illustrate something that was critical to the plot of the story that was being revealed. And in this particular instance, there is a word that is being used to get our attention. It's a word that's being used to say to us, do you get the message? Do you see what God is up to in this passage? It's a word that is used some 12 times in verses 6 to 22. It's the Hebrew word shuv, or the Hebrew word for repentance, or the Hebrew word for return. We find it in verse 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 15 twice, 16, 21, and 22 twice. That should signal us that God's trying to get our attention about something. Trouble is that any Hebrew word often has, uh, we have a hard time translating it consistently in a passage. And so many of our English translations would obscure the fact that this word was used 12 times in these short verses. The word shuv, the Hebrew word for return or repent, means just that. It means on one level, physical returning. It is simply going back, turning away from Uh, to return or to turn back from. And so there is physical motion implied. There is physical turning implied. But it also carries a very deep theological meaning. For this particular word is the most common word used in the Old Testament for spiritual repentance. 
And so it's a word that, that means um, the, uh, of how a covenant um, child of God returns to God after straying or after backsliding. It's a word that, uh, that describes the turning away from evil to righteousness. And you've heard me talk about that when we've talked about repentance before. That repentance means you're walking one way and you, you physically turn around and you walk the other way. And it's a spiritual turning away. You turn from evil and you turn from righteousness. So that's implied in this Hebrew word, shuv. What's also implied in this word, though, is an aspect of turning away from God. So it's a word that can also be used for turning one's back on God. So that word is used 12 times in these verses. And it's a word that describes then for us not only physical turnings and returnings, but spiritual turning and returnings. Not only do we have a movement from Bethlehem to Moab, but we also have a movement of turning back towards God, turning towards his grace and his mercy. In other words, there are turnings in this book that are both physical and spiritual. Orpha, there is a turning. Ruth, there is a turning. Naomi, there, there is a turning. And so things are not only as they seem, There is a lot more going on than meets the physical eye. As one person said, the verb shuv runs like a melody line through the whole story. And when we hear it again and again, we cannot possibly miss what this story is about. It's about turning back to God. It's about returning to his grace. And so that is the overall theme of these verses. The, the next thing that I think I begin to observe when we work our way through this passage, and then look at what it means to return or to come back to God, we see that returning always begins with God. It always begins with God. Returning and repentance in both physical and spiritual terms are not givens. We shouldn't take for granted that if we walk away from God, we will at any time be able to say, well, now's the time I'm turning back to God. The world is a dangerous place. Sin is a deceptive master. And so what we find in this particular passage is that God is the one that initiates the turning back to him. It always begins with God. It says, we we find here that it says that Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab Loved ones, do you hear what is beginning to be said, even in that little phrase? That God is now extending his grace and his mercy to Naomi, who is in the fields of Moab. God is not restricted to time and place. God is not restricted to this church, and you can only hear God when you come to the gathering of his people here. The grace and mercy of God extends even to the land of Moab. It it extends to us in the depth of our sorrow and our loss. And I suspect that this might have been the last place that Naomi thought she would have heard from God. And yet she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord, or Yahweh, the covenant God, had visited his people and given them food. Let that just settle in your mind a little bit. This morning, in a distant land, away from the people of God, away from the land of God, away from the tabernacle of God, Naomi had heard about the grace and mercy of God, how God had visited his people. That is a means of even beginning to spur hope in her heart. This is more than just a drop by for visit or drop by for coffee kind of visit. 
This was more like God has been watching. He had noticed there was a need, and he had come by now to meet that need. That word visit means to attend with care. It means to take notice of, to pay close attention to, to watch over, to come to the aid of. And it's not an easy word to find again in English correspondence to. But, for example, we read that the Lord visited Sarah and she conceived. The Lord saw her need. The Lord remembered his promise to her. The Lord touched her womb and she was able to conceive. We hear this same word being used that the Lord visited his people in Egypt. God had looked down and he had seen their affliction and he had seen how they were beat up and he had seen how they were abused and the Lord visited his people in Egypt and sent them Aaron and Moses to deliver them. We read in another place of Hannah, how the Lord visited Hannah and enabled her to conceive. So it's a word that reminds us that God is aware of our circumstances even when we are not. That God is willing and able to come to our need even when we aren't ready for him to come to our need. It's the same um, Greek word. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that we find in the New Testament in some of the songs of Christmas where Mary says, Blessed be the Lord for he has visited his people and redeemed them. See, it's much more than dropping by for coffee. It's seeing our need, coming to the aid of our situation, and delivering us. So he had visited his people. She had heard that God had come to the aid of her people back in Israel. And how had he done this? It said she had visited his people and given them food. The very basic needs of us are met by God. The providence of God even extends to putting food on our table. The mercy in God, mercy and grace of God, even reaches out to the point where he provides us with the things that we eat on a daily basis. He had taken notice of his people. He was aware of their dire situations. He gave them food. God is involved in even the practical issues of your life and my life. And on a side note, do we not pray, give us this day our daily bread? Do we not, as Romans encourages us, recognize that everything that is on our table comes to us from God and therefore we ought to give thanks for us or for it? I think sometimes we have become so used to having money and going to Save On or Thrifties or any of these other stores and buying our stuff and we get thinking that, well, we've provided for ourselves. And we somehow forget that, no, it's God that made that stuff grow. It's God that made those chickens get fat. It's God that grew those cattle. It's God that grew those vegetables. He set the rain. He set the farmers. It's God that gave the men and women jobs that take it from the fields to the processing plants. It's God that takes it from the processing plants to our department store shelves. It's God that gives us employees that cut it up and package it and put it in bags for us. It's God that gives us home and fridge to put that in. And so every day when we sit down, to eat it should be with the very literal sense God you have provided for my daily food today thank you for your providential provision in my life but you see what is being said here again in the broader situation we might be in dire straits we might have given up all hope the storm might be brewing around us obscuring any light that we might have but God is aware of your situation God knows what you need God is watching you, and God is preparing to visit you. He is not blind. He is not unaffected. He sees the depths of your situation. He will come to your aid. Don't lose hope. But then sometimes we cannot 
see the hand of God in our returning, especially in the early stages, because our hopelessness has blinded us. As we further move into this passage, we realize that this return, this both spiritual and this physical return, is rarely smooth. That it's accompanied by bumps along the path. And as we were singing that song, I come running back to you. I said, well, no. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes I come back limping to you. I think of Jacob who was touched in his hip and limped evermore. Sometimes I come back staggering because I've been so beat up. I have been so defeated. And yes, sometimes I come running back to you. But the road back to God is very rarely smooth. And so we see that there is this, as this return is underway, Ruth begins, she's, she's made the initial steps out of Moab. I don't know how far out of Moab they were, but she does this strange thing. She stops and to the two young women that are accompanying her, she says, you guys go home. Go back to your families. And it's, it's gentle at first, but she says, go return. Leave my direction Leave my God, leave my people, and go back to your gods and your people. I don't know why she did this, and I don't know why she waited this long. Maybe she was worried, and she knew that in herself, that she would be easily convinced to stay if she had have said in the fields of Moab, girls were going back to Bethlehem. And so she waited till they were out of town so she had a little bit more strength. Maybe it was that she was um, uh, doing what many of us do when we're in grief and we're in tough situations and we push people away. Even though they're there to help, even though they're there to comfort, by our actions and our words, we push them out of our lives and we push them out of our circumstances. I've seen this happen often. But at least she did it kindly. She says, return to your mother's house. Go back there and find support. Go back there and find encouragement. And even as I was thinking about that, there's a whole other theme woven through this passage, which I'll only drop for you to think about and contemplate on, but it's counting the cost of discipleship. It's counting the cost of what it means to follow Christ. It's counting the cost of what it means to throw your lot in with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And it reminds me of those times when Jesus was gathered with large crowds of people. And as he was beginning to teach them, sometimes he would teach them tough stuff. And as he was teaching them tough stuff, it's like one by one they would leave and they would go and they would depart. And Jesus would turn to his disciples and he would say to them, are you too going to leave me? And they would say, no, for you have the words of life. There is a cost for following Christ. There is a cost for committing to the God of Israel. And so she, she encourages these two girls to go back home. And then she prays this amazing prayer for them. In the midst of her own hopelessness, she prays, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have with the dead in me. In other words, may God show hesed to you. May God, as you have been um, gone above and beyond what would be expected, if, as you have shown extraordinary kindness to me, may God show that to you. That is the kind of God he is. He is a graceful God. He is a merciful God. In other words, God is not unaware of your actions, ladies. God is not unaware of what you have done. God has seen how you've cared for my husband, and then you cared for me in my grief, and then you cared for my boys, and now you're caring for me after my boys are gone. God is watching. God is everywhere. God sees all things. This is an amazing statement about our God. 
And then she prays even more. She says, may the Lord give you rest. This isn't just physical rest that she's talking about. She's talking about emotional rest and relational rest and family rest. Little did she know that for Ruth, it would, in, it would eventually mean spiritual rest. But this is our God. This is Naomi's God. He is able to meet all of your needs. And you know that the same, that the Greek word is used, the, 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 the Old Testament Greek word that is used here is the exact same Greek word that's used in the New Testament in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is our God. He is the God that takes our burdens, that takes our pain, that takes our heaviness, that takes our burdens, and he gives us rest. God has not changed, beloved. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And then she even further says, and may the Lord give you a husband. That God is, here we are back to practical issues again. May God give you a husband. May you be blessed in the, in the homes of your husband. Here is God's provision for them again. Do you see what also is being said here, dear ones? That God is not just a God of Israel. He's a God of Moab. He's a God of the Moabites. He is a God that not only provides for the needs of his covenant people, but he is a God that provides for the needs of the whole world. That all the world is his. All that is in it belongs to him. All the peoples are the creation of his hand. So God is not just able to only meet the needs of Christians. He is able to meet the needs of your neighbors. He is able to meet the needs of Buddhists, of, of, of Muslims, of atheists. He is able to provide for their needs. And isn't that just what the Bible says? That God sends the, the, the sun and the rain on both the wicked and on the righteous? It's a beautiful picture of the breadth of God that Naomi has here. That she somehow got it. That God was the God of the whole world. And it was he who would bless those young girls. But they don't go. And so that old saying goes, is that first you don't succeed. Try, try again. And so this time she's a little bit harsher with them. Basically she says, you have nothing to gain by staying with me. I have nothing to offer you, and God's hand may be upon you. It's difficult to understand how Naomi could have just said this beautiful prayer to these girls, and now she tells them, if you throw your lot in with me, the hand of God will be upon you. I don't understand how she made that jump so quickly, but when we're in the, the, the depth of bitterness and the depth of hopelessness, it's very hard for us to see that God may want to bless us, that God is for us and not against us, because the circumstances of our lives has conspired to blind us to everything around us. She says, I'm too old to have a husband. That's her way of saying, I have passed childbearing years. Even if I did have a husband, she says, and were to get pregnant tonight and, and by a chance of all chances have twin boys, would you stay around until they were old enough to marry you? No, she says, that's not reasonable. The first suitable man that comes your way, you're going to want to marry him. The end result of this, she says, if you stay with me, God just may strike you. My path has been a bitter one. Everything I seem to touch breaks. 
Stay away from me if you know what's good for you. My future and by association, your future will be bleak because the hand of the Lord is against me. Have you ever thought like that? That God just won't let you breathe? That everything you seem to do, God seems to squash? And yet she has just prayed this beautiful prayer that God would bless these two women in her home. See, she's lost sight of God. Her hopelessness has obscured her view of God. And even in her returning, even as God is working in her heart and drawing her back home physically and drawing her home spiritually, the road is not smooth, for her vision is blurred. Ophrah counts the costs, and she returns to her people. She turns away from God. She physically moves away from God, and she spiritually moves away from God. Again, why is it so easy for us to articulate God and ability to trust in God and help another, but not ourselves? Why do we push away those who love us and want to help us when we are struggling? Why do we articulate the means of hope so well that doesn't, though, take in God's power to deal with my situation? Again, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, loved ones. Our God is the God of promises. Our God is the eternal God. Our God is the God of the impossible. We also see that the return is often accompanied by unrecognized gifts. I see this in my life and I've seen this in the lives of others who have working their way out of hopeless situations that, that in their straining and their struggling to return to God, sometimes they miss the gifts of God all around them. For instance... Ruth's relational commitment. You see what it says in in verse 14, the end of verse 14? But Ruth clung to her. That's a beautiful picture. It's the same word that's used in Genesis to speak of a husband leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife, of clinging to his wife. I almost picture here that that Ruth has wrapped her arms around Naomi's neck and she says, you're not going to drive me away from you. I'm not going to leave you. Where you go, I'm going to go. It's this beautiful image that I have of this young woman that has committed herself to Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She is willing to leave everything to stay with Naomi. That is a gracious provision of God to Naomi, even in her hopelessness. What an example of counting the cost from Ruth's point of view. And then there's Ruth's spiritual conversion. And this is something that you can spend a lot longer on, but I just want to sort of introduce it to you. And in the days of tweeting, I don't tweet yet. Um, uh, well, you might, well, some of you might not even know what tweeting is. It's not what birds do. It's a new technology, I understand. And uh, it, it's a technology that drives me absolutely bonkers because I really don't care what's going on in the vast majority of people's lives to that extent. Um, I'm going to the store. Okay. Uh, anyhow. <laughs> if you're a tweeter, and I know that um, John Piper tweets from time to time, of Ruth's conversion, John Piper might tweet, simply astounding. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. This is Ruth saying, I want to take on a new identity. 
I am embracing a new God to which I will submit my life to. It's this commitment to, to, to Yahweh that goes even beyond a commitment to Ruth, which is staggering. For she says, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You see, if Ruth had have just committed to Naomi as long as Naomi was alive, that's not such a big deal. Maybe five years, six years, because after all, Ruth was old. But she was saying, no, no, no. I am committing to your people and your God as long as I live. She's making a complete about face and a whole new commitment to God. Loved ones, that is what it means to commit to God. And if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with what it means to have a relationship with God, this is what it means. It's not a commitment for a couple weeks. It's not a commitment for a couple years. It's not a commitment until your life gets better. It's a commitment forever and ever and ever. And so Ruth makes this commitment. Even in spite of what Naomi had just said to her, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Isn't that amazing the way that God works? We would think, well, I better not say that because that might stop them from coming to faith in Christ. And sometimes we're very gentle with people. Sometimes, you know, we try and protect them from the hard stuff about God. In fact, I don't even think Naomi was concerned about Ruth's salvation, really. She was just being honest with her. But in spite of her, Naomi comes to this amazing commitment. And I think over 10 years, even of the 10 years of trouble and hopelessness, even at their family dinner times, and you know, as they walked in the fields, they must have talked about God and how he was with Abraham, their father, and how God led the people of Israel um, out of Egypt with all these miracles, and how God had parted the Jordan, and they had walked across on dry land, and, and how they had marched around this big city seven times, and it had all fallen on the ground, and they had They had done some of the traditions and maybe they had even recited some of the Torah that they had remembered. That even though they were a long way from home, somehow, even in the midst of their distance from God, what they knew to be true still came out in their conversation. And she had talked about God and the family had talked about God. El Shaddai, the Almighty God, the God of justice. El, the God of all gods. The God that, accompanied, uh, that, that is above all gods in the earth. Yahweh. The personal covenant God. Maybe she had talked and they had talked and the boys had talked while they were alive about the attributes of God. About his power over the natural world. How he shut the heavens back in Bethlehem. And yet he is the God that provides rain. How he's the God that parts seas. How he's the God that makes walls crumble. This is the kind of God that he is. He's the God that provides for his people. He's a God of kindness. He sees and he rewards. There's blessings and there's curses. He's the God of provision. He gives rest. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down and rest. He's a God of discipline. As as the Old Testament reminds us again and again that God disciplines those he loves. And so Ruth had been watching and Ruth had been listening and Ruth had been softening and with no concern for herself with only a desire to commit to Naomi and the God of Naomi she leaves her home She leaves her family, she leaves her country, she leaves everything that is familiar to her, and she commits to a new God and a new people. Sinclair Ferguson writes, this is perhaps the most detailed account in the Old Testament of how God works sovereignly to bring someone to faith. And Naomi missed this. 
in her own hopelessness and in her return to God, she missed what God had done spiritually in Ruth's life. Loved ones, I think we need to know that the light of Christ shines through us even when we're in dark places. I am so encouraged by the stories I hear of people in hospital, sometimes under huge pain themselves, who maybe have a book on their table that they lend to the person in the bed beside them, or maybe they have a spouse that comes in and prays with them, and, and they think they're not doing anything. In fact, they're angry at God that they're there, and yet somehow the person in the bed besides them says, can you tell me about this God that is sustaining you and these people that are coming to visit you? And so even in the midst of our own hopelessness, in the midst of our own despair, the light of Christ shines through us. Why? Because it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so even in the midst of these dark times, God was working through Naomi and her family while they were alive to influence Ruth to commit to the God of Israel. And then she missed Ruth's companionship. I don't think she really got even verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She just missed it. And then we have the, the, the fact that our return can be limited by a, or hindered by a limited view of God. And this is another point where you're going to have to do a lot more thinking on your own because we could have spent our whole time here this morning. But when Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, news sort of had stirred that here they are. And the amazing thing that, that hits me is that they didn't recognize Naomi at first. Is, is this Naomi? And I think in part it might have been due to the fact that, that Naomi had left with a husband and two boys and now she was coming back with another woman. And they maybe weren't sure that this is Naomi because her family situation had changed. But I also think that maybe it was because of the stress and the strain of those last 10 years. I've watched and I see it even now with President Obama that after four years in office, the incredible strain and stress of that job takes a toll on those men. Their hair grays, their, their faces show the strain. And I think after eight or ten years that um, you would see it even more. We see that in the lives of people we love. Sometimes you only have to go through something for about five or six weeks, but it's so heavy and it's so stressful that your whole complexion and your whole, your whole bearing changes because of the weight of your hopelessness. And so she had said, is this Naomi? And, and she says to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because she was frozen in time. She had been unable to see the God that had been with her up until the time that those ten years began. She was unable to see the God that was even moving to bring her back to Bethlehem now. And she was just frozen in those weeks and those months and those years where she had lost her husband, she had lost her boys, and she was now without hope. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What do you think of Naomi's theology? She blames God for her circumstances. She attributes even the evil that has come upon her, the calamity that has come upon her, to God. I frankly find something refreshing about this. Because it's not often that we will hear somebody so clearly acknowledge the hand of God in their bitter circumstances. Naomi both acknowledges 
the character of God, uh, and takes responsibility for her own personal action and choices. And in that, she rightly expresses three things in her pain. God exists, that God is sovereign, and that God has afflicted her. And to that point, she is right. But she doesn't go far enough. Because she rightly attributes sovereignty to God, but it's a sovereignty without grace. It's it's an omnipotent power without compassion. It's justice without mercy. It's a view of God that limits God to specific situations and circumstances. There is so much more to the... To, the, to, the, to what's going on than meets the eye. And I think of the story of Joseph, which runs so parallel to the story of Naomi. And look at how Joseph responds at the end of it all. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he says in another point that God brought this all upon me so that he might deliver his people. And I think, what if Naomi had have looked ahead or had have known somehow that down the road, uh, the, through her circumstances, God would bring the greatest king about that had ever come to the people of Israel? And what if she sort of saw even farther down the road that from that king of Israel would come the king of kings and the Lord of lords who would be our God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe her view would have been just a little bit different. Yes, God has done this in my life, but this is why. We don't always see the why, but we need to remember that if God is the God that can bring us through difficult times and arrange the circumstances of our life and control them in difficult times, he's also the God that turns those around. And he's also the God that guides the prosperity and the good circumstances of our life. So she missed the fact that she was alive and back in Bethlehem. She missed the fact that she was among family and friends. She missed the fact that she had Ruth beside her. She missed the fact that Ruth had had this amazing spiritual conversion. She missed the fact that God had broken the famine. All she could say was, I went away full and God has brought me back empty. The last thing we say is that the return is the path of hope. It's not until God sets his hand on us and we start turning back to him, whether it's limping, whether it's running, whether it's staggering, whether it's battered, The return is the path of hope. It says, it ends there, simply saying, so Naomi returned. I love that. There's this kind of, oh, she's going to be okay. She's in the right direction. And then we read a little bit farther, and Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. This amazing spiritual turnabout. And we, we have to think that now things are on the way to getting better. If anything painful has fallen on you to make your future look hopeless, learn from Ruth that God is at work for you right now to give you a future and a hope. I started by talking about migraines. You know, even in the middle of my migraines, God was there. I just couldn't see it. I had medicine that I could take that once in a while would ease the pain. I had a wife that would do whatever she could to comfort me and ease my distress during those hours. I knew that if I could just fall asleep, that I would wake up okay. And I also knew that if I fell asleep and didn't wake up, I would be with God. But I couldn't see all of that stuff when the pain and the intensity of that migraine was beating down on me. And it's the same in our return back to God. Helplessness is a powerful blindness. 
as we're returning back to God, may God give us the grace and the mercy and the sight to see his gifts all around us, to see that he has not left us on our own, to see that he is aware of us, that he is watching us, and that he is yet preparing to visit us for our good and for his glory.